Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm Stephen, your host for today, and I'm speaking with Professor Boaz Kesar from the Department of Psychology. Professor Kesar is the William Benton Professor and has served as the chair of the Cognition Program since 2005. Before arriving at Chicago, he was awarded a Fulbright Scholarship during his time at Princeton and later received the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Fellowship. He's here today to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Professor Kesar, it's lovely to have you on the course today. How are you doing? Great. Uh, thank you for having me. Much discussed, but uh, let's just get some of the basics out of the way here first. Can you just, you know, in broad strokes, give me an overview of your career, beginning with undergraduate and obviously uh, leading up to now? You know, what institutions have you attended and then been dealing with? I did my BA at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I grew up in Jerusalem. And after my BA, I... Uh, did PhD in uh, Princeton University in uh, psychology. Oh, by the way, my BA was in philosophy and psychology. And then when I did my PhD, I, I did it in cognitive psychology. <laughs> and then I did two years of postdoc at Stanford University in the psych department and then started my first job and only job at the University of Chicago in the psych department. Wow. Okay. And so you've been there for how many years now? Oh, a long time, um, since 91. So that makes it uh, 31 years. Wow, <laughs> that's impressive. And uh, getting into your actual field of study a little bit, could you you know, explain in terms that a layperson would understand what the focus of uh, your study is and, and what kind of research you've been doing right now? So in the last several years, my lab has focused on the kind of broadly speaking the question of what is the relationship between language, the language we use, the nature of language, and the way that we make decisions, reason, think, and so on. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about what you're actually doing right now uh, in a little bit. But first, uh, I want to go back uh, into your biography. Can you just describe a little bit your upbringing and if there were any, any signs, you know, when, when you were uh, a kid, maybe like middle or high school age, that you were going to go into this field? I mean, I understand that you did. You were thinking about academia at a young age. Is that correct? I actually, yeah, I was uh, thinking about academia, but in very vague terms. I actually didn't really understand what it means to be, to have an academic career. Uh, now I know that I didn't understand back then. But I, I grew up in, in Jerusalem. My parents uh, were not uh, academics, but my father works at the Hebrew University as a technician. And so I had a lot of exposure. I mean, I would go visit him as a young child and the uh, professors there would spoil me. That was very nice. And I loved the environment uh, and the way it felt at the university. But but I really didn't understand what was going on there, what the people doing. Um, so I, I grew up in Jerusalem. I don't think I had anything to do with psychology when I was growing up. And uh, I was always a good student, but nothing out of the ordinary, I would say. And then, um, uh, you know, in Israel, there's a compulsory military service. So I, I spent three and a half years in the military and uh, became an officer there and then and then um, it wasn't clear what I would do in life. I did not have any particular plan. So I, I tried, I actually tried to sell things, just make money selling and uh, do door-to-door selling of, what was it back then, uh, uh, alarm systems. Yeah. It was a major failure. I don't think I sold, 
I don't think I sold one in like three months. I I, I, re- I reached the conclusion that I have no talent for for selling anything, and so I said I have to go back to school, and uh, that's what I did. That's funny. Uh, do you think there are any lessons from uh, your brief stint as a salesman that, that are still relevant to your career today or not so much? Well, there's one big lesson, which is you got to prepare. Mm. I, I, just, uh, I was just thrown into it without any real serious preparation. And bomb, because you have to prepare. It doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter if you're going to do something spontaneous. You got to prepare even for that. And so uh, that's one big lesson. Another is, well, I reached the conclusion that I have no talent for, for selling anything. And I think it's wrong because I ended up in a career where at the end I realized that half my time, what I do is I'm selling. I'm selling ideas. I'm selling my projects to funding agencies. I'm sending my articles to reviewers, to journals. And so I've done very well, actually. So it's not true that it's not about talent. I think it's more about how much are you interested in what you sell that uh, would give you some ability to actually do it. That's an interesting point. And, and I, I do want to get into that aspect of the job. But I also, uh, you know, I'm just curious, you said you realized you had to go back to school. Um, what led you, you know, down the path towards uh, studying psychology? I ended up in psychology because when I was in the military, I took a, I had a little bit of time some summer and I took a, a course, a correspondence course in social psychology. And that was very, very interesting for me. So that pushed me towards that. And I also did philosophy, so I double major. I, I, I was just interested in the questions, the, the kind of the big questions that philosophy poses uh, was fascinating to me back then. And then I ended up really combining the, the, the interests because the kind of questions that we ask are very much related to philosophical questions, but they are psychological questions. To tell you the truth, I was, I was pretty clueless about what does it mean to, to pursue a PhD. You know, I, I was very young. And, you know, we're all very young when we finish our, our BA. I think as students in, in the States are even younger because uh, they don't do, you know, three years in the military. And when you're so young, you might think you know what you really want to do. But I think it's a really good idea to kind of keep an open mind because I... I was clueless and I, I, I think I had a sense that I was clueless, but I, I knew that um, going outside of Israel, going to the States for a PhD would open up a lot of, of options. Mm-hmm. I was intrigued by it. And, that, you know, thinking back about the process of actually just applying, think about that. That was mid-80s, right? No internet, nothing, right? How do you know what's going on in the States when you're in Israel? <laughs> How do you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I went to this uh, American cultural center that was in Jerusalem and started looking through all sorts of books that they had about PhD programs. It was very, very low tech and got some idea about the different programs. It was, it was actually surreal and, and, and sent letters, right, <laughs> to these places, <laughs> which is, you know, it's much, much, much better, right? I mean, students can get a lot of information from, from websites and 
understand uh, more or less what's going on in those programs. Uh, so I was very much in the dark, uh, but I was sort of okay with that. I thought, you know, I sent a lot of applications and and got a couple of acceptance. And that was, well, that was extremely exciting, you know, to get an offer to be in a PhD program where you they actually pay you to come study. I think that idea made the decision for me. I mean, I mean really, I mean, uh, uh, come study and, and we'll finance it. And that's what I did. It was just incredible for me to do that. So it sounds like you felt that it was important to leave Israel and sort of see more of the world or, you know, what was the, the impetus for coming to the States? Yeah, that, that it was that, that I, I, I did want to explore other opportunities, but really academically speaking, in most fields, the United States system is, is pretty much the center. There are things that you might want to do in Europe, but definitely in psychology, this is the place to be when you study, I think. And it was back then, and it still is. So getting into your graduate studies uh, and, and your subsequent career, who uh, would you say have been some of the most important people in, in your journey? Who has been some of the people whose uh, support you've ever relied on? Other than my wife. Well, I, yeah, so uh, your wife is also a professor, correct? Yeah, actually, we were in the same program. Uh, that's how we met in Princeton. And, you know, actually, I, I'll get back to your question about sure. uh, people <laughs> who helped in the career, but that actually reminds me, you know, when uh, I think we make all sorts of decisions in, in, in life, and that's, that's way beyond academia, right? Uh, I, I would say that the single most important decision that uh, most of us make is who we end up uh, with as a partner. That should not be underestimated. If you have a partner, that is a, has a major influence on your life. And for me, having my wife was crucial, not just for my life, but also for my career. So um, that's probably, if you, if you ask me, the, the person who's influenced my wife the most, my life the most, that's it. Now, in terms of my career, the single most important person was my advisor. And it tends to be true for most <laughs> people. My graduate advisor... Well, they, actually, the, the, uh, early on, in, during my BA, there were several professors who were influential in make me, you know, teaching me how to think, but also supporting and helping me, in helping me create a path and supporting me to get into programs, you know, uh, like, you know, providing me with letters of recommendation, which is crucial. I think undergraduate students, some of them know that, but they underestimate how important it is the relationship with professors in order to learn from them, but also to have them as champions so that they can uh, help you and guide you in your future career. But um, really, in terms of academic career, my graduate advisor, uh, Sam Glucksberg, who unfortunately recently passed away, has been the most important figure in my career. He accepted me into his lab. Very, very smart guy. I, I, I kind of uh, uh, always amazed at, at his wisdom. But not just that, he was a very kind person. I have no idea what he saw in me and why he believed in me, <laughs> but he did. And that definitely helped me through graduate school. It was, and not only did I learn a lot from him, but, uh, you know, there... There are so many things where 
you need people to be um, generous <laughs> with you. Yeah. Because we're, we are not always on our performing at our best. <laughs> uh, and when somebody believes in you, then they tend to err on the positive interpretation of things. Right. So uh, he did that. And another thing is to understand about relationship with these kind of figures like advisor, especially in academia, it's a long-term relationship. Graduate students, they, I think it takes people time to understand that it's not just the five years that they go to graduate school. This is just the beginning. I've benefited from Sam's uh, support for 30 years, more than that, right? But he was important for me all along. And so this kind of relationship, you know, it changes the kind of support you get, the kind of championship uh, uh, help that you get changes over time, but it's always there. And so that relationship is, is crucial. So we get a lot of help. I mean, there's this myth that people are just, you know, self-made individuals that just do it on their own. It doesn't exist in academia. We get help from amazing people. And, you know, I try to help my students become amazing people. I mean, it's, it's, it's always about kind of a relationship and, and, and supporting each other. It's, it's more like a family model than anything else. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a great description of that and, and a really good point. I, I want to turn now to uh, what's going on uh, with you currently and, and what's going on in your field. You said before we started recording, uh, you're on sabbatical um, back in Israel at the moment. Um, you know, what, what is exciting to you right now, um, either in your own research or just in the field in general? What are you kind of most interested in, in pursuing or, or learning about these days? Uh, in terms of the, the themes, we, um, uh, you know, I say we, because in my field, it's never just the professor. I, you know, I, you know, we, I, I have a, a many papers that are published about projects with a lot of experiments and contributions and all this, but it's not like I did it. It's all collaborative. We work in the lab and really the graduate students are the ones who uh, are the driving force of the projects. Uh, that's pretty much true for almost everything. So I, I really enjoy the collaboration. Collaboration with my graduate students, collaboration with other faculty around the world, actually. I have many collaborations around the world. That is a huge amount of fun. It's in intellectually stimulating and it's, uh, it's you know, it keeps me going. Um, so in my lab, uh, for the last several years, we have been focused on, for example, uh, one of the major foci is um, the question of how do we live in a language? We don't tend to think about a language as like a a place, an element that drastically affects our lives. But if you're bilingual, you actually have a very strong feeling that you are different when you use different languages. And there are many reasons for that. And one important one is the difference between how how we behave when we use our native tongue and as opposed to a foreign language that we, we are fluent in. So, so you are and you understand everything, but still you might behave very differently. And we find systematic differences. For example, we find that people solve moral dilemmas differently wow. when they use a foreign language. I mean, you would think that a moral choice goes to the heart of your moral core, 
So yeah. why should it matter if you approach it in your native tongue or foreign language? I'll give you an example. If you have a choice, you know that five people are going to die and you can save them if you kill one person. Most people say, I'm not going to do that. I understand the calculation. Five is better than one. Five lives is better than one life. But I cannot actually do it, right? I don't know what your intuition is, but that's like a very famous moral dilemma in philosophy. It turns out, so the reason to, to kill the person is to do the utilitarian thing, right, of, of saving five lives. It turns out that if we ask this question, the same person in a, in a foreign language, they're twice as likely to, to say, yes, I'll do it. Wow. So they become more utilitarian. So we, we actually discovered this a few years ago. And since then, it was, has been replicated in like, I don't know, five different labs around the world. So I pretty much trust the finding. And there are all sorts of explanations to this, for this. And, and one important one is that when we use a foreign language, it doesn't feel so emotional to us. So we can do the calculation more in, in a less uh, emotional way. And that affects also the uh, financial decision-making. So we find that people are less afraid of taking risks that are financial risks um, in a foreign language. And I mean financial risks that are beneficial, you know, you know, risks that are worth taking, but they're risky. You know, you could lose, but you're more likely to win. So it affects financial decision-making, it affects um, judgments of um, culpability. Uh, I have uh, colleagues who found that. It affects many aspects uh, of life. And recently, we actually found that it has implications for conflict resolution. Whether you get, let's say, a, a peace proposal in your native tongue or in a lingua franca, uh, which is, uh, you know, tends to be English these days, right? A, a language that both parties speak, but it's a native tongue of neither. Uh, people are more open to getting a peace proposal in their native tongue than in a lingua franca according to our findings. What would your advice be for people who are considering entering your field? So if you're a student, if you're an undergraduate student uh, and you want to study psychology, my advice would be not to be driven by the stereotypical notion of what is psychology, but psychology is a huge field. Lots of different domains that psychology studies and traditions and methods. And I would suggest kind of looking in advance at the different uh, types of psychology and figuring out what is most interesting for you. You know, typically when people think about psychology, they think about therapy. We, we don't do anything remotely related to that. But that's, what people, that's the first thing that comes to mind. So figure out what is interesting for you in psychology. If you want to do graduate school in psychology, you want to find a lab where you're going to be uh, trained. I tell this to all prospective students. The most important thing in that decision is fit. You know, it could be, you know, they, maybe they pay you more or less money. Maybe it's a more or less prestigious university. If you don't have a perfect fit or really good fit with the program, with the advisor, with the lab, you're going to suffer dramatically because, you know, it's five years. You want to feel at home there. And, and, and the best way to find out whether you are a good fit or not, is to talk to graduate students who are currently in the lab. 
Not the professor. The professor has no idea what it feels like to be a graduate student. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's great advice. I'm glad you said that, actually. I'm not sure if, if anyone else had given that answer, but that's a really, really good piece of advice. Um, we are almost out of time, and uh, I just want to close by asking uh, another fairly open-ended question, which you could probably discuss for a while, but um, what is <laughs> the most gratifying thing about your job? You know, it's really nice to, and it's a privilege to be dealing with ideas most of your time. This is really nice. But I think the most gratifying thing is that I have perfect autonomy. I'm, I, have, I can really do research, whatever I want. And I do it in an amazing environment. The intellectual environment of the University of Chicago is unbelievably stimulating. And, and, and I, I marvel at this every day. It is amazing for me to be surrounded by People are smarter than me all the time. This is the best thing that can have happen to you, right? And and working with students. I mean, when I say people are smarter than me, I mean the undergrads too, right? Of course, there are a lot of professors who are, but the undergrads and the graduate students, they're really, really, really good. And that is an amazing experience that, you know, it is priceless for me. Thank you, Professor Kesar, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the others. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more. See you around.